0: Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the Safety View, Meet the Author. We've got a great show in in line for you today. And I'm gonna hand it over to my co-host today, Gary Wong, to kick us off. Take it away, Gary.
1: Thanks, Tamara. Thanks welcome everybody to our session here. Um, I'm really honored and pleased that we have Marian Kiley with us. Um, I've known Marion for a few years now. We've done some work together Um, with Cognitive Edge and look forward to doing more. Uh, I'm just gonna let Marion say like two sentences of where you're from and what what have you been doing before we kick into the questions.
2: Ryan, thanks, Gary. Uh, My name, as you were saying, is Marion Kiley. I'm based in Cork in Ireland, um, very much in the health and safety space with a focus on wellbeing and trying to prevent um, work-related stress leading to burnout and suffering along those lines. And a lot of my work basically involves working with stories. And I have come in contact with the Kinevan framework. And I think that's why I'm um, here today. I've been invited as I co authored a chapter in the Kinevan book with Ellie Snowden. And uh, thanks to Tamara and yourselves for the invitation to speak here today on that.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm screen sharing right now. Um, I get to uh, control some of the slides here. This is the book that uh, Marion's talking about here. It's available on Amazon, by the way. You can buy it in print, or you can actually get it in the Kindle version as well. So let's kind of dive right into it and talk a bit about the chapter that uh, Marion wrote. You begin the chapter, Marion, by stating that uh, executives should not assume that well-being is an individual's problem. So that it's a business challenge that goes beyond productivity. Can I get you to expand on that? What do you mean by that?
2: I suppose a lot of the time when we look at um, health, safety and well-being, we we tend to focus on the individual, especially on a well-being front. We tend to come in and we look at, the slide you have up here looks at stress management interventions. So if we look at well-being and stress, they're like two sides of the same coin. So when we want to improve well-being, we try to find out what is it that might be leading to stress. We try and, you know, alleviate some of those stressors um, in the organization to try with the view of improving wellbeing. But what we see a lot of, and you, you'll probably recognize this, is the secondary and the tertiary um, interventions, but we don't see an awful lot of the primary. And what I tend to liken this to is first aid and plasters and people getting cuts. So really, when we look at health and safety, we go into our hierarchy of controls and we try and prevent the cuts from happening. And that's where your primary is. So when we're looking at well-being here, we want to find out like, how can we combat work-related stress by looking at how work is organized? So when we look at it, some organizations are good on this front, but many organizations are nearly afraid of going here because they do believe it's the individual and it's very subjective and they don't want to get into that touchy-feely side of things. What we see a lot of is the secondary side of things here, which is the management of stress management interventions, which, and this, um, secondary approach it's like it looks to combat work-related stress by developing individual skills in stress management through training and we see a lot out there in relation to training people to recognize um, elements um, that might be present by um, some co-workers whose well-being might be negatively affected how to recognize that how to deal with it managers how to deal with it as well so that's it it's really good the secondary aspects but that's about putting on the plasters is teaching people how to administer the first aid is the equivalent of that and then when we see in the tertiary that's like that's when actually someone has to go to hospital there's blood being spilled here and they need some medical attention and the equivalent of that then is like when somebody is for example you know they might have burnout, out it has gone too far we didn't get in there early enough and the harm has been done. So a lot of the times what we see is that secondary and tertiary, we see a lot of it bandied about and there's a lot of talk on LinkedIn, there's a lot of talk by many organisations with solutions in this regard, but there's very little actually going in there to try and prevent the cuts. There's a lot of stuff around, you know, uh, sleep hygiene, your diet, your exercise, all really good stuff. But actually, when we look at how is the work negatively, uh, and it's not just negatively, it's positively or negatively impacting the well-being. That's the primary. Where is the good stuff happening? What pockets of the organization is it happening? How can we actually try and amplify that elsewhere and bring that cross-pollinated in the organization? And actually, where is the less than desirable aspect? Where are they happening? How can we actually find them out um, at an early stage and try and take action to try and prevent? You know unnecessary harm and suffering coming from that so when we say it's it's not just an individual thing we absolutely are so you know individuals coming into an organization but when we manage any other aspect of work be that like chemical hazards or physical hazards or biological hazards we don't just say oh this individual had this reaction we go in and we try and find out in so far as we can and we look at the broader um, risks associated with these hazards. And when we look at the psychosocial aspects of work, you know, it could be the demand people are under, you know, the, the workload. It could be some something physical in the environment. It could be the relationship, the interpersonal relationships, is there bullying going on? Um, are we being told about that? You know what I mean? Um, it could be the role conflict um, that might be present. Mm-hmm. It could be the support from leadership or peers. Is that present or isn't it, you know? So it, it's a different way we can't just go out and observe and tick a box we have to actually go out and ask people um, in relation to their experiences
1: good thanks for that i I really like the quote in your book from professor leka at the business school at university college cork in ireland how about sharing what she said with the listeners
2: yeah professor leka um she was based in the uk and came to to university college cork I lecture as well there last year and um We included her quote in the chapter, we thought it was so appropriate. So what she says is that even though health, safety and well-being are at the core of workplace and societal functioning and development, the current state of the art indicates that approaches that have been used to promote them have not had the anticipated results. This also applies to mental health in the workplace. A new paradigm is needed to capture the complexity of the modern workplace in relation to mental health. So we just thought that was really powerful because there's a lot of work being done. There's a lot of people doing really good work out there but actually when we look at it, you know um we're not having the anticipated results. we're going right. out there and we're we're sticking plasters on and we're we're taking people to the hospital but we're not preventing the cuts we're not going yeah. in there. Right. So it's trying to understand that and, and there's real complex it's, it's really complex territory trying to get into that even when you look at the regulation of that and why is there a reluctance on the part of regulators to go in and ask these questions, and give improvement notices in relation to psychosocial risk assessments, or finding out what it is here, you know, that's ailing people, um, you know. So um, yeah.
1: So so what I'm doing, I'm screen sharing your figure one in your chapter, because you okay. talk about complexity. So I think that's where the Canavan framework helps. Can you yeah. can you tell us how the Canavan framework? describes this new paradigm that Professor Lika says that we need?
2: Yeah, and I think Gary, you do a lot of work in safety, and you have, you know, I, I, I would often send my students actually to your website, it's such a huge, um, you know, fountain, like there's a huge resource there, and you have actually populated the Kinevan framework in relation to safety, and a lot of the tools and the methods that we use are over here on the right hand side. But when we look at well-being, and mental health, it's actually over here as well. We're looking on the right hand side here for people. Um, are people familiar with the Cinevin framework actually? Um,
1: why, don't, why don't you just um, give it a quick tour, okay. one minute, just around there, just go through the different um, domains.
2: Yeah. If you look on the right hand side here, okay, there are two domains here. You have the, the clear and complicated. Basically here, what we can see is that there is clear cause and effect relationships. Um, down in the clear, we're all in agreement here. You know, it's, it's, it's obvious to us um, what the cause and effect is. We can move up to the complicators. There is a cause and effect relationship, but we might actually have to call in some expert. If I want to get my car serviced, for example, it's very obvious to the mechanic. But to me, it's not. So we just call someone in who can actually look at this. But then when we go over to the left hand side here um, of the framework, what we're looking at here is actually this is the unordered space. And this is where cause and effect relationships, they're not immediately obvious to us. It's only in hindsight that we will see these cause and effect relationships. So a lot of the times, what we tend to do is we tend to look at every um, issue that we have as something that's maybe complicated or it's clear. And in that complicated space, that's the domain of the experts. And this is where you actually bring in people who are the experts. And when in relation to wellbeing, You know, we bring in these experts to try and solve a problem like there is a clear cause and effect relationship, but actually well-being is quite complex and you act in a different way when you come over here to the complex domain. So actually bringing in this expertise without actually finding out what really is, you know, where are we at here in relation to what are the psychosocial, psychosocial aspects of work that are positively or negatively influencing our employees. Somebody from external cannot tell us that. If they have worked down the road in another plant, in another company, and they have this recipe for well-being, it might well work when you're trying to come up with solutions in relation to a certain aspect that is leading to stressors in the organisation. But you don't know if that's actually present here or not yet because you haven't asked the question. So we want to go over here. We want to find out and ask those questions in such a way that we're really getting good, rich data and the... I'm sure you've spoken before about psychological safety. This is actually about trying to find out what is it that's happening. And we have populated the Canevin framework. Actually, this is in our chapter as well, and we have yeah. outlined in that some of the um, some of the well-being approaches. Um, and what what I didn't mention previously is you'll see the little curve here at the bottom between clear and chaotic, and if you could imagine that in a three D. The clear is up at a really, really high space here. It's like a top of a cliff. And if you fall over here, you can go well down into, um, you can end up in chaos. Now I'm an advocate of mindfulness. I practise mindfulness um, meditations. I was on a course there recently. I done my masters on mindfulness interventions. They're absolutely, I'm a big believer in it. But the reason we have it down here in the clear domain is that it's not for everybody. And it's not to be seen as a solution that can be put out there that will fix people. If people have a certain problem, we'll send them for mindfulness training. And if they don't come back and their stress isn't down, then it's their problem. We need to be very, very careful that we don't put somebody, some employee who's under a bit of feeling the pressure to make them feel that they're a bigger problem. And, that, you know what I mean? and to actually make their stress worse, because they can actually end up going into that chaos place saying, what's wrong with me? Other people in the organization or in my workplace, they've tried this mindfulness stuff, they're all flying it. I can't, it, it's not working for me. Some people don't want to go into that place. Their lived experience is such, they don't want to go in there. They really don't want, want to be present and bring some of that stuff that has been buried from the past um, forward. So it's just being mindful of mindfulness, <laughs> I suppose for want of a better, better expression. It is very good, but it's not a one size fits all. You know, We have down here as well, when we look at physical and mental health promotion, um, down here we often see like gym membership subsidies, sleep hygiene, yoga and yogurt, we will call it, you know, a cycle to work scheme. They're all really good, but they're down here, you know, in an ordered space, but we can't see if they're actually going to fix some problem. They will definitely help improve, but there are other aspects as well. We go up here in the complicated domain and up here we have a lot of, um, we might have our work related stress risk assessment. And this is like, again, when somebody, some expert comes in. Um, who would have some system here for doing this risk assessment. It could be an occupational health physician um, or advisor. Um, you might have peer support programmes, employee assistance programmes. These are expert led. They're very, very good. I have availed of these services myself. Um, they're absolutely brilliant, but they do belong in the complicated domain. And you can have surveys here as well. And a lot of the times we see this um, in relation to uh, well-being, and a survey is issued and we look at this quantitative data and to see where we're at, but a lot of the times the context is missing. You know, it's not present in those surveys. So when we go over to the complex domain, then what we see here and sometimes we'll see change systems such as performance management, career progression, uh, reward and recognition systems, these actually they can go between the complex and the complicated domain. know um we're trying to see here which ones of these are positively or negatively impacting um the well-being but when we come down to SenseMaker, then which is a software um designed by cognitive edge this actually works with stories and there is no right or wrong way to do this and you've probably experienced this yourselves when you look at surveys that are issued out depending on the form at the time and i have worked in some organizations where you it was a bit of a, a bartering tool and if the lads were looking for something um, to be got it was good actually before the employee engagement survey came out to start bartering and then there'd be nobody actually filling in the survey and then there was a fear that everybody was just going to put in zeros or ones or twos instead of the tens you know so it was a good time actually for unions and stuff to so sometimes you can get the data in the surveys getting played depending on the organization whereas with working with stories there is no playing really it's just saying this is an experience i'm sharing and i'm attaching some you know, sense making to that. This is what my experience means to me. So there is no um, playing it as such. But what you can get out of that is you can get quantitative data, you can really see the patterns that are here and you can break it down via demographics, via, you know, uh, various plants, uh, geographical locations between various functions in the organisation. Um, And you can contrast and compare and you can see, you know, shift A are doing really well, shift B, actually, there's a real issue here in relation to something we didn't even realise that was present. So that can help with that. And What we've done here then on the line between complex and chaotic here is uh, working with stories. And this really is kind of some workshops and I have done a lot of these um, in the past in relation to um, looking at safe-to-fail experiments, anecdote circles is one of the methods and sense-making workshops, I've right. there.
1: So, so most of you professionals that are on the line, you've Ooh. been dealing with a lot of data, ranging from pen and paper checklists to make keyboard entries and sophisticated safety software programs. That's good and well. In fact, the idea of the Canavan Framework is that everything you see there is fine and it works well within that domain and we call that bounded applicability. But what you don't want to do is actually kind of do those traditional surveys when they're actually in the complex domain here. That's what Marion is trying to explain here. So we know the term is big data and that big data captures the who, the when, the where, and the what aspects here. What Marion is talking about is the whole concept of stories and why stories are so powerful. Marion, can you just, Tell us a bit about Homo and and why they are so powerful. Yeah, and I suppose, look,
2: um, Gary, you came over last year to the Iron Islands um, and we had a kind of retreat um, where Dave was present and some of the others at Cognitive Edge. And we looked at how sto- stories shape our societies and our organisations. And I think this year that has been played out on a scale that we probably couldn't have perceived um, prior to that. And If you just look at um you know, stories and narrative around elections and how that shapes people. When we look at um, even Brexit and stuff, you know what I mean? The stories really hold a lot of weight. We can present a lot of data and numbers to people, but actually the meaning can really be derived much more from a story. Now, what we're interested in when we're talking about stories and we're talking about sense maker, we're much more interested in the patterns from multiple stories. And then we can go in and say, I'm really curious about this pattern that's developing here. And we can go in and we can actually get the context and we can read those stories and we can find out information that we previously were not aware of because there's blind spots in organizations the whole time and what these stories do they're basically employees holding up mirrors so we can see around these corners and see nuggets of information that we just weren't aware of before so these stories and I think uh, I imagine Tamara a lot of people here on this call are like health and safety professionals you would have a lot of health and safety people who will come in with a really good program that they want to roll out in an organization. But if the story is, and if the narrative in that organization is, they actually don't care. We've reported stuff loads of times before. They didn't listen. That story, that narrative has much more sway over people, whether they will actually engage, no matter how good the program is. If that narrative is there, it is a barrier. And it really, that really influences our behaviors and how much we will engage or how much we will disengage with something. They have huge weight in, um, in, in our making sense. Um, you know, and we can go on about stories and I can share so many stories here, you know, from an organization level, but actually from like even a national level that has just changed actually. And even the title of the book, the fabric of our organization, like the fabric of our nation here in Ireland has been shifted by
1: stories. <laughs> you know. So, so far as a bit of a summary, what Marion is telling, talking about is kind of from the theory side of how do we can make change, but a lot of you on, on here are practitioners, so what we're interested in is how do you take the theory and actually use that within the workplace here? So in the chapter here, Marion has a really good practical method, how to collect stories using anecdote circles. So I'm gonna ask Miriam to explain quickly what an anecdotal circle is, what are the benefits, and maybe some of the do's and don'ts about anecdotal circles.
3: I have a question before that. Um, Sure,
1: go ahead. Miriam, do you think
3: that um, an internal person can get uh, these stories versus an external person because of the psychological safety of being able to tell the truth?
2: I I do Rosa and in my experience it's down to you know yourself right there's some people who are genuine and active listeners and you have others who are in it they don't have skin in the game you know what I mean they're in it for their own like and this is not so much um I've been there in the past and I have actually put my own role on the line because I wouldn't reveal because of an anonymous system who has said what and who reported what that integrity has to be there. But I do believe and I'm sure in your experience you have been told stories in the past you know um, and these are ones that aren't actually said in the meetings and you can go into meetings and there can be you know really good stuff presented and people are nodding in silence then you come out the door and that's when the real discussion starts not actually in front of management sometimes inside in these meetings you know yeah. but I do believe sometimes and it's bad when it's down to just an individual as well you know um, if a whole and um, program is dependent on one individual, what happens when that individual is out? Is that trust gone? Is everything gone now? So we need to try and make sure that it's not just down to somebody being a good listener. Collecting these stories, I think a lot of it is around how it's communicated, as in the reason why we want to collect these stories. And actually, when I, when you look at it on a big scale, you have SenseMaker, and this is actually collecting stories across the organization, across the country, depending on, uh, on what context. And then you have workshops where you're collecting on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. How you communicate why you're actually collecting these stories and how it's going to help the decision makers to actually bring about real impact in the organization. If that's done and you have a good um, steering group working with you who can convey and communicate this quite clearly, that's really helpful. If you're looking at a workshop whereby you have a facilitator, it's good actually to have two facilitators um, in that, but again it's, it's not your job as a facilitator to influence those stories. It's not your job to even to give one example. And this comes back to what Gary is asking me. You were there to bring these people together so they can learn from each other. They can share their knowledge without realizing it. Because within these stories, in our experience in work, we think other people know what we know. And it's just obvious to us. So we don't actually even talk about it. But by actually telling stories, we share information that we don't realize that others don't know. And they pick that up via the stories and I can even bring this back to I was visiting um I was, I was in Kansas there last year and I was staying with a friend and it came up in conversation, something about um, Trump, I'll be honest, and I know this is very topical this year in the States with the elections. And just from my perspective, I suppose, being somebody in Ireland and I'm not making this political, but I wouldn't be a big Trump fan, you know, and I, I was just wondering, I couldn't believe why people would actually vote that way. And this guy told me a story and in his experience, why he changed From being a Democrat to voting report and the way he told that story, I understood, I got it. In that context, I got it. And I was like, that makes absolute sense to me. Whereas if we talk of this polarized um side of things, the stories help us to get the context to make sense of that situation as to why people would do what they do. And once you know that information, now we have a chance of actually doing something together and going forward with this new, you know, um insights that we have gained from each other whereas if we're just going to be at loggerheads here like and I'm seeing a six and you're seeing a nine and there's no way one of us is going to go around the side to even try and see why the other one sees it that way then we don't go you know but um, just as a facilitator your job is to actually enable others to share their stories it's not to influence in any way shape or form and I have to give a shout out and this to Ron Donaldson actually who would have been my mentor when I got going Dave suggested I uh reach out to, to Ron who's, um his Ecology of Knowledge is is, knowledge, uh, or his, um, is Ron's website, but he's real uh, master at Anecdote Circles. And um, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I've seen some stories shared yeah, in workshops whereby yeah. I've gotten goosebumps just mm-hmm. by being an observer and seeing people yeah. um, present stories. And I've yeah. seen people cry yeah. with laughter as well. They're just a great way of actually yeah. building, breaking okay. barriers,
1: you know. Just on that topic here, uh, one of things I've actually discovered there's a big difference between being a consultant, which is typically over in the complicated and can even clear domain, mm-hmm. and actually being a complex facilitator. So a, as a complex facilitator, as I've noted in the chat from, from Sandra and Tanya, I am not a therapist. I'm not a trained psych, um, psychologist. I don't go there because I'm not trying to look and influence the content. The content is owned by the storytellers and it's up to do with here. If I'm a so-called facilitator, I'm looking after the process and the context and kind of saying that. So even in this session, um, when people come up to you and ask you, what should we do next, Gary? What should we, should we do this, Marion? Our answer is, I don't know. Why don't you go talk to somebody else and find out? You know, it sounds like a lame answer, but it's very powerful because they go, oh, turn around, and they find their own answer within their own context, within their own group there. It takes a lot of practice because you as a consultant, you want to get in there, you know, because you've got a timeline to meet and you got things to get done. You just got to hold that and don't go there. And it's just a let challenge. Let the conversation flow.
2: Yeah, it is a challenge because look we come from people are coming to us with a problem they want us to come in and fix it and we're human beings so we want to help other people We want to fix it but actually we have to get comfortable with saying we don't know here we just have to go in and let your folks at it and just let them try and make sense of this and come up with their own you know small actions that they believe will have a big impact here in this organization and it's just by getting those multiple perspectives And you can see some really rich output coming out of that, like, you know, with some safe to fail experiments and stuff. And that's really powerful as well, when you can see people making sense of, because at a certain level in the organization, if I'm an operator, which I was for a lot of my time uh, in my previous role, we'll say in Pfizer, I see the organization from my perspective. Now, my supervisor has another layer. He sees other things from his perspective that I'm actually blinded to his manager sees more and other side of things. And actually you have the senior leaders and directors and stuff. And actually between all those layers, if we can come together and actually talk about some issue that's coming up in such a way, you know, and share our knowledge in in a way, you know, that is safe to do so. The insights that we can glean from that can be really helpful in understanding. Aha. That's why that won't work. So there's no point in actually yeah. putting forward this because I didn't realise there was a budget cap on that if it goes over a certain amount. So if we keep it, okay, right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It. And it's just by gaining these little nuggets that we can kind of come together and say, right, let's try it. Have we thought about how this might fail? And if it did, how might we pull mm-hmm. the plug on it? Have we thought about how it might look like if it succeeded? And if it did, is there anywhere else in the organisation we believe would benefit from that, that we could actually, mm-hmm. you know, Try and cross pollinate it there across the organization and see if it can take shoot elsewhere but it's by these small actions that we'll see that change because a lot of the time and you've mentioned it there about consultants coming in they're selling solutions they're selling recipes that will have worked for a com- in a company down the road and they're bringing in the same set of recipes
0: right,
2: right. It, you know thinking that this will actually fix the the problems here but they haven't actually asked the questions and a lot of the times the expertise is inside your own organization and when we look at it I think it's the last time I said is it 75% of these change programs fail yeah. you know when, when they actually yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's around that like so it's yeah. like when we come in with these big change programs we have to be really aware of the Hawthorne effect and when we have pilot programs you know management are so keen or the leadership are so keen for this to actually be a success through no fault of their own, we all have our biases and things that we're not even aware of because they're saying like, we really need this to work and we're investing a lot of money. People will tell you what they think you want to hear, you know? So even though something mightn't be working optimally, we will actually, we'll we'll cut bits off this to make it fit because this is what's wanted, you know? And for a certain amount of time, just like you do with the hot art effect, with turning up the lights and turning down the lights, productivity will increase, you know? But it's actually when you go away, what's it like in six months time or 12 months time? And then we see actually it's not what we thought it was. But by doing these small actions locally and actually having a real ripple effect, you can get a real resonance, you can get a vibration across the organ and that can shift or it does take time, but you can see that actually happening. And that really changes the ecosystem more so than a big, or taking off this plaster or putting on this one, it's like our small little actions, yeah.
3: Marian, as a person who's collected stories for over 30 years, uh, as you are describing, um, I find there's another, um, what shall we call it, um, hazard (laughs) in this process, which is that when you go into an organization and you start collecting the stories, people begin to feel a sense of hope that something is going to get better or something is going to change, and then nothing does. Because I have delivered these stories um, to some managers and or executives and they're moved by them and others are completely unmoved by by the information. Um, so and as we know, um, you know, the, the safety professional isn't the one with the power and resources to actually uh, make the changes in the organization. So I'm wondering how you Uh, manage that how you go in Are is that something that you think about um, the
2: level of commitment of the management group or yeah and I've been there I've done that Rosa and I've similar experience whereby you go in and I have presented to senior leadership team saying guys I'm presenting here and it's a bit of a gamble because people are looking for where is this work before you know and you're saying look it's kind of a new approach in your context, but it's it's worked across the globe and there's plenty of applications of it, but they are taking a bit of a leap of faith. But the one thing I would say is, before you go down this road, be mindful, we're going to give hope. If you are not willing as leaders to follow through on the actions and some of the suggestions that come out of this, you will probably end up worse off than where you are. Because now there's a bigger chance you're going to have some learned helplessness where people are going to be more disillusioned than what they were previously. So it's trying to instill, and I've learned the hard way on that. Now I try and do a piece first with the leadership team, trying to pique their curiosity to say we can bury our heads in the sand or we can pretend that life is the way we want to see it or we can actually take our heads up and try and see where actually are we. What is the reality in this organisation? How do people feel? How do they see it and perceive it? What options are there for us? And if they want to be a stick in the mud and be this robust, old, you know, this is the way we're, we're gonna ride this one out, so be it. But you run the risk of just catastrophic results if you're not willing to actually put those feelers out there to those potential weak signals. And some of them actually aren't all that weak and take that on board to help you become more resilient and give you that competitive edge really. Um, but I think what the problem can be actually if you're dealing with um, you know uh, the public sector in particular, that competition isn't there and there can, be a lot of bureaucracy and there can be a lot of people there for years and in some places it's not so much that I come back and tell the stories in the workshops that we do is we facilitate people telling stories themselves amongst each other and actually having that resonance you know and going around and seeing what the reality is from other people's uh, mm-hmm. stories but it's just they do come up with some safety fail experiments and if the support isn't there from the leadership teams and managers to actually follow through on that Yes,
3: That's I a mean, real missed opportunity as well. I see Tanya nodding her head a yeah. lot. Tanya, what are you thinking? Uh, you're muted. There you go. Uh-huh.
4: Well, I don't, I mean, I think the, everything that Marion is saying is absolutely true. I mean, I, you know, the, Alvison and Spicer wrote a book on the, on functional stupidity, which, you know, they, they had concluded and they're not the only authors eh there are lots of other books that talk about how dysfunctional our workplaces are but it's real it's absolutely real and um, and and people who stand up to the the you know dysfunction in their workplace don't necessarily get what they think they will from such an experience so you know it's it's absolutely real so i mean if but I mean, I have heard so many people's echo what Marion had said that you know the leadership do, don't know. Like there was a uh, there was a podcast that I listened to recently where uh, there's corruption in some companies in Norway, and uh, so they you know the leaders are now on in high level trial type situations, and so they start talking about um, so how is the culture you know, at your company. And they say, well, it's good. And these researchers were saying, how do you know? How can you even answer a question like that? How can you even have the words to express that you have any information on that? You're just making it up. If you're not actually actively trying to get these stories and trying to understand work as done and trying to understand more about your own company, you, could, you should refuse to answer a question like that because you honestly don't know.
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting actually, Sonia, who's another colleague of ours in uh, Cognitive Edge, she ran a very interesting uh, SenseMaker project in South Africa. And at the same time, they issued out their traditional um, employee engagement survey. So SenseMaker was issued out in relation to safety and they had the employee survey as well. Actually, like the employee survey so- showed everything was hunky-dory, you know, all rosy in the garden no problems sense maker then oh hang on a second this is a very different picture so what we're seeing here if we are coming from a place of genuine curiosity there's a whole lot there to learn but it is down to know do we really want to know do our leaders want to know or is it all about getting this machine this organization as lean as we can so close to the bone actually that there's going to be some blood spilt but we're happy with that or do we really want to know and make this a very resilient organization that can adapt and change as, as it goes, depending on what comes at it, you know.
0: And it would be yeah. great if other uh, members have questions to or thoughts to share in. Lisa, yeah, I, you I, just, yeah
5: thanks, Tamara. I was just going to respond to Marion, and I, I I agree that uh, managers may not know, and hearing from employees is critical. I am going to be a little bit um, provocative and say that many manager leaders, or if they're leaders, uh, don't want to know. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a very hard road ahead of us in helping the the current managers, the incumbents, understand their own fear of losing power. I think that is going to be critical to the success of Kenevan in helping organizations move forward. And I, I trust you're you're getting there. In fact, let me ask that question. Are you finding that there is sometimes resistance to hearing the stories yeah. and, and moving in that direction? Yeah. That's the next mm-hmm. book,
2: please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great. I could write a whole yeah. book on that, like you know, and there's a whole psychology. Sort of so let me respond to that is that we often talk about finding and discovering patterns that kind of tell us people to behave. What we're finding out, Lisa, is that there are anti-patterns. What are anti-patterns? Things are like that here. Uh, we'd like to know what's going on, but we really don't want to know what's going on because I'm going to lose power. So That's I think right. a whole extra piece of research we want to do in here is Kind of look for those anti-patterns here and find out, not us as consultants, but find out if the people were willing to kind of raise these anti-patterns and reveal them to management. Sometimes I use the term black elephants. We know it's like an elephant in the room here and it's black, like a black swan. Mm-hmm. Is it time for the company to raise and reveal the black elephants? then what are you going to want to do about it? That's right. I'm glad. Think, you know, we, go yeah. ahead. Sorry, Maria.
2: No, I think regardless that you were always going to have some people. I had one there a couple of years back where I go, it's like kids with their blankies, you know? They have this with them since the year dot and they yeah. love the feel they get from this blankie. So it's the system that they have nourished and polished and looked after for all these years. I know somebody's coming in potentially saying, we need to do something different. And come hell or high water, like this blankie is, st- you know what I mean? So it's, it, it's that attachment piece and just being really mindful of the psychology behind that. And there will always be resistance, that there will, you know, in my experience. Um, what I re- find frustrating because
5: the gap that exists between the words that come from these leaders' mouths of, we so want the engagement, we want empowerment. And yet what you've just said, Marion, and you also alluded to Gary, the recognition of their own loss of power in honoring those words is huge. And how do you build
2: the awareness? That's what comes out of the stories. A lot of the times we talk about values. What are our values and what's up on the walls here? What I'm really interested in and what comes out of the stories are the norms. You will not find them written down anywhere. You know and if you try and find them somewhere inside in a control room or inside in a conference room you will not see these norms but if you go to, and you like have stories and have the lads out on the floor talking you will find out the do's and the don'ts you just you just don't do that you know and you will find out very soon but we don't give that too much information but they do come out within those stories in relation to even if they're not spelt out When we actually go back and look at them and some of the patterns and some of the clusters and we're saying trying to make sense of this here like i've been in some organizations where like people have actually stood around a table looking at this story and there's like oh and the rape allegations it's like i'm looking going the what and like they're all nodding it's like oh my god this is actually in this organization so there can be dark stuff there that resonates with people you know what i mean but actually we just need to um that stuff will just trickle out in the stories whereas it, you will not get that and your, your, your check sheet and your 35 questions and it's like heart scale of one to ten good bad or indifferent and in how i feel you will not get that context whereas in the stories that stuff just it falls out you know and uh, there can be a real understanding there as to what it really is like for people and sometimes leadership need to hear that i have been in uh, workshops whereby the leadership team who had gone through um a merger, um, they were going around, and they couldn't believe that people were fearful, they were, they were describing the organisation as dark, there was mistrust, there was uncertainty, and they were like, but we have communicated this time, but when they went to the fourth table, they were like, oh my god, we have a big problem here, we haven't communicated this well, this is what our people feel, they actually, I could come in and tell them that, going back to your point, Rosa, it doesn't matter what I say but it's actually when they hear it themselves and those layers that this intermediation piece is taken out and they make sense of it themselves because the people are there in front of them, that's what can actually help for them to see this is actually where things are, this is where we're at. And it can be a challenge because a lot of the times you have a health and safety manager or director, but they don't have the power in the organization really to influence because we talk and Rosa, you've done huge research here in relation to safety culture and actually, It's the organization culture. It's not just but you have somebody who is very passionate about safety and wants to improve the safety side of things. But it's the whole organization has to shift here to enable that the artifacts that we use every day. How are our bonuses? How do they influence how our managers actually, you know, behave? If you want to look at that whole behavior piece, like, you know, on a day to day basis, you know, what are the rules? What are the things that we're focusing on? Are we going back to our zero? Are we looking at we don't want a certain type of injury? So that's where all the stuff is going. So when we look at health and safety, we're here supposed to be trying to protect people and prevent these injuries and suffering from happening. But actually we're taking people to the doctor when they need help and we're telling him not to give them, you know, and um, prescribe medication because that's going to reflect badly on us. What are we actually doing? When we stand back and we put it a numbers game and that's what safety has become. In a lot of organizations, not in all of them, you know, and yes. that's where the well-being overlaps as well. Yes.
3: Sorry, you no, know, uh, We, when we first uh, Tamara, Lisa, and I first began to get gather together the these you guys as thought leaders, we had a vision of um, working collaborating together to bring uh, thought uh, thinking to the next level. So it wasn't just you know, well, let me and We want to learn from you because that is your area of expertise, but I'm wondering if we could take it to another level just for a moment, because I have been thinking about this a long time ever since um, uh, I read Carl Weeks uh, example of the doctors who did not recognize child abuse in the emergency room. But when a social worker came in, she recognized it immediately. So the difference is how you're educated and trained, right? We each have a focus. And obviously, management is focused on financials and marketing. I mean, I've been through the MBA program. (laughs) I know what the MBA program consists of. And it certainly doesn't, it consists of understanding the human systems. Mm -hmm. So why don't we, why, what would happen if we just acknowledge that? and brought in people with that expertise you know the psychology the social work and we said hey you know you guys this is your bailiwick uh, because we we really do need to have this part of the organization be healthy.
0: I'd also like to have a chance for some of the other members who have been a little bit more quiet. Sandra and Tonya, I've seen you guys having some discussion in the chat. That would be really great to share with Marion.
2: Cool. Can I just go back to Rosa on that one point before we move on? Um, Ed Corbett, who's with the HSE in the UK, has mentioned that several times. Oh, he yeah. Ed Corbett? <laughs> Work connected with Ed. Fierce, nice guy. Um, Connect with him on LinkedIn. But he's saying, why are these MBAs, why is there not a piece in there on the value of health and safety? You know what I mean? And how if we go a different way about things, how we can really help with those numbers. If this is what we're interested in and we're interested in shareholder value and the financials, it can be a real help. And if you look at the project that was done in Mercy Care, um, the NHS in the UK and their restorative just culture and learning programme, they saved... I don't know I think conservatively they said 1.8 million pounds per year but I think it was closer to double that mm-hmm. so if you can show these leaders actually this isn't just fluffy bunny stuff where your people are going to be happy clappy and but it's going to cost you a fortune if you can show actually it makes good business sense you're well protected legally you know what I mean you really have consulted here and you're taking action on the real issues and your people feel valued and respected and there's huge, inclusion here, like in the decision-making and how we evolve this organization. Now you're talking, now you're going to actually catch their attention. So I think we need more examples like that. And actually, if you're talking to the universities saying, how can we include some of this in those modules that these MBAs are delivering as well? That it's not seen. And I can see why. And if you look at the whole deregulation piece around health and safety, and you actually had David Cameron in the UK come back there in the last, whenever he was in power saying, that he was going to get rid of this albatross health and safety around the neck of businesses, you know, mm-hmm. that we were seen as just dead weight. A lot of health and safety is really good stuff. You know what I mean? There's really good things happening. Some of it is just bureaucracy and has been taken too far. And I think we need to kind of get a Marie Kondo, really, you know, to declutter a lot of our health and safety, to keep the good, what brings us joy, <laughs> and try and maybe start looking at. What is some of the stuff that's just dead weight? We're doing it because we've always done it, but it's not actually delivering. You know, it's not improving the health and
1: safety. Sorry, no. I agree. I agree. Yeah, listen, Sandra got some comments you want to share?
6: Oh, Marion, it's just, it's always great to hear from you. And uh, I'm, I'm always learning from you and, and can't wait to learn more. I've ordered my copy of, of the book, so I, l- I look forward to that to read over the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I mean, just so much of, of your experience resonates with me. I, I've always struggled a little bit with some of our, uh, with employee surveys sometimes, because they sort of give, uh, maybe on a good day, you know, they're giving some sort of direction or a sense of like, this isn't going the way we want, or maybe it is, but uh, the way it's, it's designed you can't get any really depth or context so even if i want to keep doing something well or i want to fix something that's not going well i don't have enough information to know what that might be um so i i've you know i didn't call it a uh, story collecting or, or anything like that or antidote circles I, I have some training in appreciative inquiry and i kind of mixed some of those methods with some other methods to to get some of the uh, you know more difficult bits bits out too but it's only then that kind of uh, I, I was really able to help people understand if you want to make improvements and if you want to understand why this is going whatever direction it is good or bad um you know, this, you need to go further than these, these, you know, Likert scale surveys um, can do for you. And uh, to Rose's point, I always, um, I, I I tend to, to joke quite a bit about uh, that engineers would never ask a, uh, you know, a, a psychologist or a sociologist to, to come in and help them uh, design a facility or, or drill a well. But um, <laughs> we often see that, you um, uh, people feel very confident in trying to solve social human systems problems as without the expertise of people from social sciences or psychology or sociology or whatever it might be. And it just kind of, it's like phone a friend, call an expert. I mean, you it's okay to say this is not my domain of expertise and, um, you know, I, I should look elsewhere for solutions. So uh, it just all
2: really resonates with me. And I think that overlaps with what Lisa was saying earlier on as well. And that's the shift that needs to happen in leadership. Mm-hmm. Years ago, it was okay to be up in the corner office and to be the one with all the knowledge and to be able to make those decisions. Now our world is changing at such a rate where we've information overload and our systems and technology, the whole lot is changing so quickly. We need to tap into the experience that's in our department, in our team, you know, And so to actually say, I don't actually know the best way to go about this can actually be seen as inspirational because you're actually empowering your people rather than actually seeing that as a flaw in yourself, you know. Um, And I think that's a shift that um, it's getting more and more accepted, but it's definitely yeah I, mean,
6: I love the <laughs> solutions focused approach where you really try to draw out from people uh what works versus telling them what works and i really appreciate all that nuance you mentioned earlier too about maybe this worked here but you don't just go and sell it there because it doesn't uh, a big large-scale interventions don't just transfer across context seamlessly
0: absolutely yeah. and we do have member uh jim who would also like to share a thought
7: My experience is that a really good way to get integrated into the conversation and operations is to go out with paired observations, working with the line managers in the field, and helping them structure the interactions they have with their people such that they're listening more telling less, prescribing much less and having those real conversations such that the the people in the field are actually able to influence the organizational dynamics, uh, the processes and procedures in ways that help them do their job better. And I don't think we spend nearly enough time with that.
2: And it does mean a lot, Jim. I agree with you. I've seen that in the past whereby our you know, site lead, the most senior person on our site would come down and go out and actually spend some time with the lads. And he'd come back saying, I wouldn't, I'm wouldn't. i not happy with how that job has been done. I wouldn't like to be in their shoes. I want to see some change brought about there. What supports do they need? He'll chat with them, you know? And that goes a long way in building up the trust as well in the system, you know? Yeah. Now, these are all small things and they definitely help. Um, there's no doubting that. And sometimes depending on the individuals, again, there could be shyness, and they mightn't be as open as what they um, might be, you know, um, because of this person and the, and the power gradient, I suppose, for want of a better expression, that they might be disinclined to open up. But some people will be, and it's down to the leader themselves as well, you know, but definitely more of that um, human touch and seeing the people behind the title and to show that you value and respect these contributions, that all helps, you know, but
1: um, yeah.
7: In inverting.
1: The no, go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Finish
7: off. I was just saying inverting the percentage of time, so many senior leaders and a lot of mid-level and even lower level leaders are in the field um, spending 70, 80% of their time evaluating performance and providing feedback and tracking and, and those types of things. And they they don't save any time for actually listening and understanding. Uh, In in my experience, most leaders have very little understanding of how work's actually done. And
2: And it's very hard yeah, to make that prescriptive, though, isn't it? Because you will have one leader who will be absolutely brilliant and he will enjoy that. And there'll be really great rapport and you'll build trust and you'll have somebody else who will come out and they're just awkward socially. They just don't enjoy it. You can tell they don't enjoy it. The lads don't enjoy them calling down. And eventually it just dilutes. It becomes this negative thing. It, 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 the context is so important in all of this. It would be lovely to think that we could make all these great leaders that go talk to everybody and listen, but the reality is is quite different, you know? Um,
7: we have to teach them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there's some expertise out there uh, in, in how we go about that.
1: Okay. Yeah. Just want to say, uh, we have a colleague on the line, Greg Spencer. Um, Greg's done a lot of work in Kinnaven as well. And you can see by his photo in, in the area of paddling. Greg, just any comments and thoughts about well-being that maybe struck you? Greg, you still there? You're unmuted. You're still muted. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, I'm struggling slightly to um, recognise where local ownership can take place. And that, I think, is the next emerging field. We've had safety one, we've had safety two, and we've got the big patterns coming out in the stories. But at the moment, a lot of the recognition of patterns in the big stories seems to be coming at quite a high level. And I'm really interested to hear how that is happening at a local scale.
2: Um, okay. I'm trying to make sense of the question, Greg. As in the um, the people reading the patterns, you you think is it are coming from a senior level? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. In in the workshops that um, the ones I have undertaken. You actually have frontline employees that you, you you would have a mix at it like and depending on which of the methods you are using sometimes you will actually intentionally have people who work together sit together for some of them and other ones then you will actually mix that up but it's um, obviously your decision makers are senior um, and it does have to whatever actions that follow it has to go with them but there definitely is a resonance and making sense of those stories amongst all people Um, who would be involved not just um, senior you would have frontline there as well and yeah
8: and as we get down to smaller scale um, there's a phase shift we're looking at very very small groups of people the connectivity between the senior and uh, every other level is different and I see a lag I mean, a lot of the work that's being done at the cutting edge is at very large organizations. And um, there's definitely a large gap when we get down to your your small scale.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as well, I suppose when you're talking about safety one and safety two, I definitely think um, in my experience, the, the engagement piece, I suppose, if you're looking at um, just the adaptive safety piece and that whole consultation piece it's really important with your frontline, but frontline alone can't bring about that change. I have seen people who have been so, they have bought into programs, they have been big advocates, they have, you know, they've ended up with a learned helplessness because of the lack of support that has come from leadership. So that leadership piece is really important in getting that support, making sure their video is aligned with their audio. But sometimes because of the political landscape in that organization, for whatever reasons, and they're very hard to call out, there is a resistance there. And um, yeah, I, I don't have the answers to that. I'm, I'm not like every organisation is different, but I, I have seen that play out and people getting hurt um, because of that. And you just need to look at a Tanya mentioned there earlier on, about people who stand up. You look at any whistleblower out there. In hindsight, they might be cheered on as, as the champions, but actually what support did they get while they were going through that? When life was like hell? know more often than not the odds are stacked against them you know so it's not an easy one to figure out Mm -hmm. psychology wise it's it's messy um we all have a standard we think would be nice but actually in reality it plays out quite differently and people can be quite um yeah just manipulative uh, manipulative and unaccepting of each other and any threat to their status in their position where they are and, and they'll do anything to fight that so yeah, I know
0: we're coming to the end of our time, but I did want to also, you know, just ask any members who haven't had a chance to say anything yet. Um, I know some have been a, a little bit quieter than others, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Do you have anything that you want to share or ask, Marion, before we go?
5: I just want to make an observation that Greg. Please tell me you have a glass of sherry with you. <laughs> you just
3: look
9: very relaxed.
5: Like that would be the perfect thing.
8: It, it's still a little early at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Give it, give it a few minutes.
5: The setup but, is fabulous.
8: But I do think the the really interesting question to come on to is how the we have a whole history of lag where smaller organizations look to the bigger organizations for the example and feel they have to copy and follow. And the danger I'm seeing with all of this is we come up with a whole load of approaches, which are absolutely spot on for our large organizations. And then we see actual problems being introduced into safety cultures and well-being cultures in smaller organizations because people try to adapt or adopt solutions Mm -hmm. out of context and not understanding the scaling issue especially when you get to organizations of fewer than 40 50 people where everybody genuinely does know one another and trying to do this same approach does not make a lot of sense now that's not to say that they should carry on doing what they are at the moment but the answer is not to start where somebody else is
2: and it's actually interesting greg i had one client and there's eight employees um in, in their business you know and i had gone in doing some um they didn't their health and safety side of things they just wanted to um do some work on that. So I was looking at their safety um, statement, the document um, where you look at their policies and stuff, but there was a huge consultation piece there, very transparent with the team of eight. This is what we're proposing. Have you any input to that? You know, um, But actually after a year they came back and it was like, we actually, there's huge mistrust between management here and the team. So actually Ron Donaldson that I mentioned earlier in the UK came over and we actually had a workshop with eight people. And you'd say, how could you have We had it with eight people, there was animosity, we were like taken aside by some of the team members saying, can we please do this like on two separate days? But I was like, please trust the process, just go with it. Just see what comes out of it, you know? Um, We're doing this various methods, like future backwards, anecdote circles, whatever. So we done it. The difference at lunchtime even, with people looking each other in the eye with actual empathy because of stories that were shared and stuff. And this isn't now, and I don't mean to come in like, you're going to wave this magic wand and we're all going to be singing kumbaya and telling stories but it's just it's an example whereby you did have a small group and actually it did bring a boat. because it wasn't a recipe because it was us as facilitators here are the methods you tell your story you share your stories you look at where you want to go with this and what ended up happening is you actually had the team members challenging each other softly in the safe environment because now we had created the context for them to do that and there was no judgment and it, it was safe enough to do so you know so and I, you don't make those statements lightly it's not like i'm going to come in as i say like a fairy godmother and sprinkle this dust and everyone is going to be smiling that's not the case but it did work for a smaller organization in this instance without adopting yeah. um, all the bells and whistles that you might get from and adapting those larger organizations
8: yeah the yeah, narrative think- level the story level will always work it's yeah. the It's the systems which are very abstract and the rest of it that can be very different. But um, it's almost just starting from a family type scale. And, you know, we've got, you know, would this work in a family setting? I mean, Dave's example of a children's party, it's thinking through the tools at that scale um, is something that we sometimes forget.
2: And you're spot on because so much of our industry is actually those size organizations, we focus on the big ones, but they're actually a very small percentage of, you know, um, the companies out there at large. So it's definitely um, worthy to, to look at that.
0: Now, I know that we're just over our time, but Fred, I did see you on mic. So uh, did you have something that you wanted to share?
9: My thoughts are that this, it's a very, very complex area. And I think that that businesses don't want to take on the uh, the challenge of curing society of all the ills that uh, human interactions uh, create in society, and so I think there's a, a careful balancing act between how much uh, how much interaction and honesty within the organization creates benefit for the organization against we don't wanna open up other wounds and create more conflict and and, uh, challenges for the organization. So I think it's kind of a a very careful balancing act. And then another element of that that allows more focus on, there's um, been studies done with a colleague of mine in Canada that nearly 50% of of, uh, managerial time is wasted time. And so if some of the organizational structures and uh, operations that contribute to the waste of time could be eliminated, that would give time for managers to do more managerial work and and get to know their teams better and to to actually uh, pursue some of this without taking extra time away from from, uh, what's normal work.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think as well, there's actually, um, there's a really positive impact that the organisation can have on society by how the employees actually are treated. Because a lot of the times we look at health and safety, and that's how we think about how people can get hurt at work. Actually, I see it that people actually, when they go to work, they go home in a better state than what they came to work. Because if people didn't have work, well, we can see that now this year with the pandemic, without that social piece, you know, we come from tribes, we like to engage with each other. When that's missing, it really affects our wellbeing. So actually by bringing people into work and by giving them some of those secondary um, health benefits, you know what I mean, in relation to wellbeing and diet and sleep hygiene and all that that all helps and that can be shared in the family and in the community as well. So we actually help to actually create a healthier society by what we do at work as well, you know? And you could have the, the negative side of that whereby if people are mistreated, not mistreated, but if they suffer at work, the negative impact that can have on family, on their community and on their society. And that's why, and there's a whole new discussion we can have here on the regulation of this and why there's a reluctance from a regulators point to come in and actually say, where's your risk assessment here on psychosocial aspects of work.
9: Mm -hmm. Let me just leave with one one image that um, may resonate. You can, it's my impression that you can be working neck deep in shit all day long, but if the person next to you, you trust them and respect them and enjoy uh, their presence, the shits kind of secondary. I agree. Yep. <laughs> and
2: I've had those experiences <laughs> as well, Fred. I can share some of those stories <laughs> like backpacking days and cockroach-infested places in Adelaide and stuff, but great memories because the people around you um, are great. Yep.
1: I think Thank we meet end here. We're kind of like five minutes past here. So, um, and Greg, <clears throat> Greg, I know you want to get into the wine soon. So you want to do that offline. So. I just want to say thanks everybody for joining us. Um, I think the purpose of these Meet the Author sessions is to actually keep them kind of like small because we can have these really rich sort of conversations here. And just on the chat himself, wow, there's a lot of real cool comments in there. So I'm kind of multitasking, watching the screen, chatting as well. So um, tomorrow, am I correct that all this will be posted soon?
0: You've got it. Um, so our next one will be the safety view, um, and that will be on December the 3rd. And Rosa, you're, you're doing a topic on that, aren't you?
3: Yes, and it is going to be related to um, what Marion has been talking about so eloquently, the whole uh, mental health piece and how that fits in. Uh, and for me, it's an educational um, process for managers. It's, it has to start there.
2: Because uh, you know, knowledge is the first step. Are you good?
0: Well, thank you, everybody. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. No
2: worries.
1: Thank you, Thanks,
2: all. Thanks. Everyone. Enjoy the birthday
1: celebrations, Rosa. We'll talk to you again. I <laughs> think Congratulations. <laughs> <to you. laughs> yeah. happy birthday, guys.
5: <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, and Greg, get your drink. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Happy birthday Winston
3: picking on him <laughs> <laughs>